Welcome to Identity Church Sunday Morning Message, where sonship is revealed. Stay tuned at the end of this message to receive more information about resources available through Identity Church. Now grab your Bible, sit back, and enjoy a message from Identity Church that is already in progress. I'm going to use the Identity Church app. Okay, We need to really start using it as much as we can. There's, there is a, um, when you go to a podcast or uh, the YouTube library, there's, there's a button on there that if I put notes, sermon notes on it, you can download it also. I'm going to be starting to, to really kind of put that in place because we are, um, we are in a transition. Actually, we're really not in a transition. We're in a manifestation of what has already transitioned. Okay, that, that sounds better to me. Um, I want to, um, th- we're going to play a prophecy from John Kilpatrick. I don't know if anybody knows who he is. He ran the Brownsville Revival. He is a national voice. He gave this prophecy that we're going to listen to um, about the time God started revealing to me the baptism of innocence, and I started wrestling for the truth, being able to line that up with Scripture. So the time frame, the timeline of this prophecy, and you see the name up there posted by Matthew Sassano, Jr.? He's the man that has been at odds with me, and we have been had broken relationships for 22 years. He played this in his church one year ago, this prophecy. And uh, he sent it to me Friday morning, and then we are fulfilling what this prophecy is in fixing broken relationships. Listen, there are destroyed Christian families, broken relationships. There are relationships within cities between leaders that are broken that need to be healed. I believe that the the message of the baptism of innocence is one of the keys that is being released. I can tell you now, I'm starting to get um, testimonies of people in in Oklahoma, in Colorado, that have caught this anointing, and they're seeing healed relationships all over the place. And I believe that this is going to go faster than the coronavirus and will be more deadly to the enemy than the coronavirus. And so I want to, I want to play this prophecy. Um, we, we as a church, I challenge you to challenge me on today's message. I want you to challenge me. But I want you to not just challenge me out of your brokenness or your opinion. Take your little rump into your closet with God and prove this thing wrong or prove it right in your life. One or the other. Because we're, we're, we're in the process of manifesting who God called us to be. This is, this is a prophetic word. I declare by the Spirit of God that a seven-year season, a now season, of jubilee is upon the church. It is a time to rejoice because God is indeed making your enemies his footstool. Literally right now as you hear this prophetic declaration, God is at work in your life vindicating you. He's busy behind the scenes working on your behalf. A new seven-year period of great spiritual releases upon you. The years of persecution and suffering for his namesake are about to pay off big time. The year that we have marked, the year that we have just ended has marked the end of a brutal season for many of you. At first, we did not discern the magnitude of what we have come through, but now there's a supernatural season that we are experiencing, and I believe it's truly an awesome, church-wide, go-to-the-next-level, unprecedented supernatural shift. One supernatural season has ended, and a distinctly new and better supernatural season, and God has begun. Unnoticed by most, the Holy Spirit began to move around mid-January, setting off a chain reaction of spiritual events for all who have endured hardship as a soldier, of Jesus Christ. And if you've been enduring hardship, if you've been wounded, especially by friendly fire, this new season is just for you. God said he's going to heal you. 
Praise him. Hallelujah. Praise him for that. I felt that when I read that. Oh, praise him. Woo! Say! Woo! In a word, this new season is all about vindication. It's not about you exacting vengeance. It's not about you getting even. Not at all. Instead, it's about vindication from God. For the past seven years, as you have endured suffering as his faithful soldier, God said you're about to be rewarded. The truth is about to come out. You're about to be freed from alleged charges against you. You're about to be absolved and acquitted, and the Lord is about to announce over you, not guilty. Victims are about to rejoice, and accusers are about to be silenced. And the Lord said you're not being paroled, you're being acquitted. I believe that countless believers, just like you, have lived through a seven-year period of great personal hardship, especially in the area of damaged or even severed personal and ministry relationships. The Lord said all this is going to change, and it's going to change rapidly. If you've been victimized by sinners or saints, get ready. Your day is right at hand. Specifically, you have been waiting for vindication from past injustices, betrayals, and abandonments and the subsequent disillusionment it has created. Frankly, the root problem has been about witchcraft in the church. A spirit of witchcraft that has decimated and dissected you is finally being exposed. You paid a great price for your integrity, your character, and your honesty. It cost you a great deal to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. You may have even appeared to many to be a bad guy when in fact you were actually the victim of a spiritual crime. Again, all that's going to change. The Lord would say to you today, your days of mourning are over, and your jubilee has now just begun. <laughs> Hallelujah. I declare prophetically that a season of great vindication and long overdue justice for you, especially if you are one of his leaders, is upon you right now. God has already begun the necessary process of vindicating you. You've suffered betrayal false accusation, broken promises, and abandonment long enough, God said. As a result, you've been disillusioned about your call on your life far too long. The Lord said, be encouraged. He's delivering you from the results of past problems, the results of past situations and circumstances that has either delayed or in some extreme cases actually robbed you of your destiny. God said, I hear I, I say to you, all will be as it's supposed to be. There will be no part of your destiny delayed any longer, and no part of your destiny will be denied. Is there anything too hard for me? Indeed, this vindication is a key word. It's a now word from the Lord, and I hear it in my spirit loud and clear for you. To all of his wonderful and wounded warriors, to all that have been suffering abuse at the hands of others, the Lord would comfort you with these words in this season. He said, I am now vindicating you. You are being exonerated. You're about to experience true justice. You are now about to experience the promotion in God that you've waited patiently for. The seven years of explosive increase of power, gifting, and authority is yours now for the taking. You are going to the next level for sure. The promises of God in your life are about to be wonderfully and powerfully fulfilled very quickly. And... Here's the hard part of the prophetic promise, the part that you really need ears to hear. Often a prophecy's impact is only as good as a response. Whether or not this prophecy for the church impacts you personally will depend entirely on your proper uh, response. A prophecy's impact is only as good as your response to it. No doubt, you will be asked by God to participate in this healing and restoration process of formerly broken relationships, especially with Christians. Please do so graciously and humbly, just as Christ would. Say yes to any and all who are looking to be reconciled with you. I predict that people saved and unsaved from your past will soon be calling you and visiting you. They will come with olive branches in their hands looking to establish peace with you. I urge you to accept their offering and participate enthusiastically in the peace process. 
God's part during this new seven-year season will be to vindicate you in incredible ways. Like Joseph, you're coming out of your dungeon, and you're about to experience great favor upon your life. A true season of amazing promotion is awaiting you. So welcome to your new seven-year season of Jubilee. Every once in a while, you get a prophecy that, you, that lights you up on the inside. That one has lit me up on the inside. Simple fact, when I look back at the time frame that he released that, God was starting to give me the baptism of innocence message that has changed my life and the course of my life and how and why I believe God's given it to me is that I am a polar opposite of what innocent looks like. And if I can declare myself innocent with my history, then you should have no problem with your little nasty, beautiful little selves. And he's like, son, you're a billboard of my grace. And so I, I, I'm, I'm watching how God has done this. And I, I finished my book. And I sent it to the editing team to remove the redneck language of my writing and try to make it happen. I, I did that Friday um, I finished it Friday. I sent it off. So the main portion is off of me. But I almost went into uh, um, an emotional um, depression a little bit, trying to figure out what to do next. I've been trying to birth that thing. It's like birthing a rhinoceros backwards. It finally came out. And, and it's been painful, but I know it's for a purpose. And, and, and I, I really believe that, that God's got his grace on it. But in the, in the book, how many were around when John Crowder came here? Wow. I'm going to tell you a story about John Crowder. John Crowder is a world-famous sloppy grace preacher that God supernaturally connected me with. He kept telling me to read a book that was on a website, that is, and I was on financial lockdown from Susie because I had 15 books I hadn't written, uh, read that I had already bought. It was $24, a very expensive book about uh, uh, miracle workers, reformers, and very good written book, but I told God, if you really want me to do it, have someone give it to me because I'm on financial lockdown with Susie. And one of the guys sitting over there on Sunday morning comes up and walks over and he says, God told me to give you this. I bought this for 50 cents at a garage sale. And uh, I'm reading this book and it changed my life about, about miracle workers and reformers. It's a history book. It's a theological line upon lawn theological history book and this thing is blowing my mind of 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 what we've missed because of religion and so you know tristan our drummer his his uh his dad george calls me he goes what's up i'm like man i'm reading this book and it's like blowing my mind and i realized that i have i'm not touching the grace of God the way I was supposed to. And I see all this. And, and he's like, really? He says, how would you like to talk to John Crowder? Ten minutes later, John Crowder calls me. He knows George. John calls me in a moment's notice. I'm like, this is God. Let's have some meetings. At that time, we had somebody using our building that had like 125 youth. And this guy, can, I mean, this guy walks in power. He walks in grace. And it was nothing like the book. The book was theologically sound. This guy's whack job. And so I partnered with a bunch of pastors to have these, just, you know, we we're going to win the city. And then they got on YouTube, and this guy would be like, he, he hates religion. His job is to make every religious spirit mad, and he's good at it. He, start, he got in our church and started going, man, let's, you know, toke the ghost. Token the Holy Ghost. <laughs> Jesus, main line, I mean, he's just, and, and man, my, my, my religious spirit's going, bing, bing. <laughs> Susie gets free. Her and my grandson are laughing three days, a whole weekend of meetings. She wrote checks we had to cash and cover. I knew she got free. Something happened to Susie that needed to happen. So all of the damage that happened afterwards because Susie got free was worth it to me. But he had a grace message with power and freedom that, that blew up my church. Lost half the leadership. They got so hooked on grace, they figured that they could do anything they wanted to do. Some of them wound up divorced. Some of them wound up with no, wouldn't 
take responsibility for things, and called it grace. And I'm going to tell you, it was a crisis in my life because I couldn't, I couldn't figure out where he was wrong biblically. The fact of the matter is I was so religiously structured that we couldn't contain real grace. He blew up my church. Took me two years to recover. But you know, when truth is truth, what do you do? You keep fighting. You keep wrestling. Because, listen, listen, if, if grace is what grace is supposed to be, then, then I want every bit of it. But how do you run a church? How do you, how do you walk in, in, in this thing and, 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 and still maintain what you have? So today's message is stewarding grace, uncovering the mystery of innocence and righteousness. I believe that I have wrestled that, that event of sloppy grace with John Crowder. By the way, I talked to John, John Crowder on Friday. He's endorsing my book. The one thing I said to John, I said, John, I love you. I've been around you. I've seen he lived in my house. He had his kid was with me. We went on the boat. There is nothing unholy about the man. He walks in integrity. He walks in righteousness. But he has this anointing to blow up anything that's religious. And the problem is I was so religious, he blew me up. <laughs> the crux of the matter, Jesus lives his ministry, empowering people to do all that he did and more. Walking on water, tr being translated, healing, deliverance, raising the dead. But what about the forgiveness of sin? After going through the cross and defend defeating sin and death, the final impartation he released is the ministry of reconciliation through the release of grace. Did you hear that part? Through the release of grace. <clears throat> No, the reality of glory and authority to steward the grace of God is built upon the foundations of number one. Say number one. The finished work of the cross. Number two, the mystery of union with Jesus Christ. Neither of these truths are manifested in purity without an impartation and revelation of love. Listen. You're listening to your pastor, your apostle, your prophet that has wrestled the sloppy grace message. I've wrestled the sloppy out of it, and I'm telling you, I believe I have a, a, a handle on how to apply grace to be an empowerment to win the world. Susie, John chapter 20, verse 19. This is the most depressing prayer meeting on record. Everything they envisioned in their mind about what the kingdom was going to be now looked like, looked impossible. Jesus had died. Everything they had hoped for is gone. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. This is, this is the, the, the release of Jesus after the finished work of the cross. <clears throat> Their only point of unity in this prayer meeting was fear. It's the context that Jesus appears in a locked room and declares peace over them. He does know how to make an entrance. Verse 21, after a second declaration of peace, he says, as the Father sent me, I send you. So he says, peace, now get to work. So grace himself shows up, finishes the work on the cross, and says, go get to work. <clears throat> With the same ministry, the same power, mandate, he releases them to re represent him and bring the kingdom. Verse 22, <clears throat> these are, are the only two places in Scripture where Jesus breathes on them. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. The only two places in Scripture that, that Jesus breathed on anybody was at this Scripture right here, where he breathed on the disciples, and Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, where God declares his un, un, uh, unified, let us make man. Okay? The intention to make man in his image and likeness. 
in, listen, in creation, God speaks to the environment in which the created thing is designed to live within and draw life from. You catching this? For example, in creating fish, he spoke to the water, saying, let the sea bring forth. When creating land animals and plants, he said, let the earth bring forth. And when he creates man, he speaks to himself. You carry the literal DNA of God within you. Like a fish cannot breathe outside of its environment, which it was designed to live, so your spirit cannot breathe without the presence of God. You were created to walk by the Spirit. That's when he, when he breathed on his disciples in John chapter 20, he brought them back to their original design. Say something. Thank you. Acts chapter 17, verse, listen, I'm, not every scripture she's put up there, so you need, you, you need to get these notes. Acts 17, 28, in him we leave, we live, we move, and have our being. The second time breathed upon, breathed upon man was here in 22. He does so to restore man to its original intent, filling him with his spirit. <clears throat> there is, there's often question between the, the filling of Acts chapter 2, outpouring of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The presence of the spirit is the environment in which we, we live and come to in John 20. Verse 22, but the power of the Spirit is what came upon the church in Acts 2. The presence of the Spirit, I just lost my place. The presence of the Spirit is constant, but the power of the Spirit, listen to this, is unique and to be pursued. It, it uniquely belongs to the hungry who are willing to pay a price to go after it. This is not a salvation issue, so the argument that works of works is unnecessary and is not applicable. There are impartations in, God's, in God beyond salvation that requires obedience to his voice to obtain and to steward. This is the context in which is written in James, faith without works is dead. Consider the man, mandate to tarry in Jerusalem till you're filled with power. They had no idea how long, and they had no idea what to expect when it happened. Additionally, the manifestations they experienced in the filling were things that were not foretold and had no previous reference for. Peter, Peter's attributes to the Joel's prophecy in the last day, but Joel makes no mention of tongues, wind, or fire. Yet it's a perfect fit because it's not the manifestation that validates the move. Catch this. We're after the manifestations, but manifestations do not validate the move of God. Additionally, the tongue phenomena was a reversal of the Tower of Babel curse. You recognize that? In the Tower of Babel, they can accomplish anything, so he confused their language. The Holy Spirit comes in, he breathes upon them, he gives them back, he reverses the inability to communicate. Say, yea, God. <clears throat> the Tower of Babel curse in which the barrier of communication is broken down in the context of magnifying the wonderful works of God. Verse 23 of John. This is certainly one of the most misunderstood and overlooked verses in the Bible. And when he had said to this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 23, Mom. John chapter 20, verse 23. There we go. So he brings them back to the original design with the DNA of God in them. And he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they will be forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from them, it is withheld. Listen, this is the core and the crux of the grace message. You can call it sloppy if you want, or you can call it great grace. We call it sloppy because many times people use it for an excuse not to come into maturity. But I'm telling you, grace is grace. It sounds like he's given mankind not just the commandment to love, but the measurable tool by which it is determined whether people are loved or not. Did you hear that? We are either going to be famous for love or for judgment. 
up until y'all got quiet on me. Up until now, what has the church been more famous for? Love or judgment? It appears also that he's trying to, he is tying his hands to our hands and is willing to be as, be as radical as our restraint with grace as we are willing to be. Whoever sins, you forgive. Who did he put, whose hand did he put it in? You forgive. He's not restricting to a certain people or even to, to certain sins. He says, whoever, and sets no rules or restrictions upon it. There is doctrinal arguments to support the point of personal decisions and the act and the act will to accept grace, as in the case of the rich young ruler who, who walks away. But there is also a case to those at the foot of the cross who have been driving the nails into Jesus and were literally draining the life from the Son of God over them, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There's your innocence. His release of grace is not dependent upon their decision, obedience, or even awareness of what's happening. Those were the words, where those words for nothing, these words were not for nothing. There's that redneck again. Was that request denied? No. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Who was in Christ? God was in Christ reconciling the world. So when he breathed on the disciples, he said, who's ever... Sins you forgive, they'll be forgiven. Whosoever sins you retain. Listen, he's put this in us. When he said it was finished, it's now on us. God was in Christ on the cross, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against him. What if Jesus was showing us just how radical he, he meant love to be? The defining words, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Is there anyone who, can, who forgives you knew that, that what grace over your life would bring them into reconciliation with the Father? Is there anyone whose sins you would retain, condemning them to eternal torment? What if, what if it really is up to you? Listen, I think Jesus said when it was finished, it was finished. The sins of the world are now our problem because he gave us the antidote to fix it. Some of you want to drag people to Jesus' cross that is no longer there. Your religiousness is to drag someone to the cross so you can get a notch in your belt. See, I'm evangelistic, man. My, my evangelistic gift just got them to repent of their sins because they're sinners. Why didn't you just declare them forgiven? Because we want to see you cry and grovel. That's a whole other message. James 5.16, the confession of faults and sins to another is is biblical encouragement. Therefore, confess your sins. Actually, if you break that word sins, it's sins, faults, and weaknesses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. See, the problem is, is we don't believe that God's given us the DNA of God himself to walk in this kind of grace, and we don't believe that we're righteous, which is the same gift, by the way, and therefore, we don't even pray like that. I'm telling you, the, the mamby-pamby prayers aren't getting it done anymore. Why? Because he's told us to be like him. If you cannot release grace, what are you to do with that? We must be able to release the grace of God. And as James says, in the context of confession to men, confess your faults and communion with God, pray one for another. The result is healing and wholeness that you may be healed. Judgment and unforgiveness, both of yourself and others, locks people into a lifestyle of brokenness. Look up Mark chapter 2, verses 12. Uh, The story of the paralytic 
is a profound one because of the couple of significant things that happened. Verse 5, um, Jesus releases grace when he saw the faith of his friends. His love was, was released, released in response to their love. Those hearing his saying, what any good believer would say, this is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Listen, do you, do you realize he got in trouble for being God? And I'm going to tell you something. The religious spirit in the church of America will bite you if you act like God. Who do you think you are forgiving him of his sins? Who do you think you are telling them that they're forgiven? Trust me, I've been bit. Who do you think you are? There's just something inside me going, I done figured out who I am. But throughout the scripture, Jesus refers to himself as son of man and doing so demonstrating the normal Christian life and what is possible for everyone who puts their faith in him. In verse 10, he says that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sin. See, he didn't say the son of God. He said the son of man. What is he saying? He says, why aren't you doing it? Why aren't you doing it? Why aren't you forgiven? Okay. John chapter 8, 1 through 12 is a story of the woman caught in adultery. She brought, she brought before Jesus by the religious leaders and clearly condemned by the law of Moses. After Jesus says this famous line that cast the first stone, everyone leaves. He says to her, is there no one to condemn you? Do you know why people feel like they're sinners? Because we at the church have made them feel like sinners. You old dirty dog sinner, you need to come to get saved and come to my church so I can get your money. In John chapter in, in 23, Jesus invite, invite, invites us to release his love and grace implies that he will agree with ours. At this point in the story, the woman, there is nobody there for him to come into agreement with within her con condemnation. So he simply agrees with himself saying, neither do I condemn you. My, my, my question, you, you, could, can, can we go there with Charlie Coker brain? I think he was writing the word innocence. Susie and I talked yesterday. We were sharing with, with, with Stephen, my nephew. We, 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 we were preaching at this this conference of mostly African American, and and I was one of the headliners, and I was as the second night, and and I come in there, and there's this this ex prostitute that was preaching also that night, and she looks at me, she goes, "What message are you preaching?" And I said, "Well, I had my briefcase. I said I, don't know, I probably got a thousand different sermons in there, but God hadn't told me which one to preach yet." And she goes, "Oh, a thousand sermons? You got a thousand?" It just it intimidated her. I didn't mean to intimidate her. I looked at her and I said, what are you preaching? She had two Bibles, stacks of this. She was trying to do her good preaching. And I said to her, I said, you need to throw that stuff away. I said, you got the message in your heart, girl. Just, just go from your heart. Forget all that. When it was her turn to get up there, somehow... Susie's like, we were talking yesterday. She lost her notes. She misplaced her notes. She blamed me for stealing her notes. We say all that to say this. What was the title of the message, Susie? The faith of a sinful woman. And she preached about, even though she was a prostitute and she was in a predicament and she had to turn tricks to make a living, she still had faith that God was good. And she pre we, we, we still remember the message, the faith of a sinful woman. Lose your notes, please. And find out that he's better than you think he is. See, this is why I can't lose my notes.
And the declaration of Jesus is the power to achieve what he has declared. Peter gets out of the boat, responds to Jesus when Jesus said, come, disciples bring healing and deliverance in response to Jesus, declare authority over them in Luke 9, 1. So at this moment, they're, they're so far more than a wishful, a hopeful wish. It's a supernatural declaration of freedom from the bondage of sin. He gave her an encounter with literal love himself. And in that encounter, there is freedom and access to the identity, listen to this, the identity of righteousness. In Luke 7, 36 and 47, it's a story of a woman who was known as a sinner. She begins to wash his feet with her tears and gratitude. This continues for the entire meal, and the religious leaders present logical questions and question the discernment of Jesus. Consider that the response of Jesus is that she loved so much because she began forgiven so much. Who forgave her? Maybe you won't hang around certain people because you haven't forgiven them yet. Mm hmm. It means that she had been forgiven often. When you're in an atmosphere and culture where grace is stewarded and released often, there is freedom in that your failure isn't fatal or final. Instead of always identifying your sin, your glorious identity is always affirmed. The word repentance, Romans chapter 2, verse 4, <clears throat> tells us it's the kind of God that leads us to repentance. It's the, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. It's the goodness of God that brings a man to repentance, not the judgment of God. Judgment is over. Love is the new law, even if they're sinners. Modern theology has taught us that it's man's repentance that releases the kindness of God. But the scripture clearly states it's the other way around. See, we want people to repent for God to be kind to them. I'm telling you, I think it's great when God's nicer to sinners than us because he's proven his scripture right there. I got on Facebook, and, and, and God told me to give an encouragement to, to somebody that I've, I'm, I, years ago I knew her, and I just encouraged, prophesied encouraged, I wrote encouragement to her, just told her that she was all that in a bag of chips and gave her a scripture about David went to find the sword of Goliath in the whole nine yards, and I'm just doing what God said. She sends me back this, this, this instant, you know, private message. You have no idea, blah, 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 how much I needed it. And then she said, you know, I'm just going through my second divorce. I didn't know any of that. I can't believe that God would give you a word telling me that he's proud of me, that he loves me. And, and I do remember the sword of Goliath. I do remember that. And she's just, I'm like, that's pretty good, God. Quit trying to figure out whether someone needs a word and just give it to them. A revelation of grace is the key to a renewed mind. Neither faith nor repentance persuades God to forgive, but both are supernatural responses to the revelation of what God has already done. Repentance is, in the Greek word, is metaonis, M-E-T-A-N-O-I-A. It, it may include regret, but is, it is not systematic or synonymous with regret. Metaonis does not mean to confess sin. It literally means to come to your senses. Come to your identity. Come to your senses. Or to change your mind. In Scripture, it means to change your thinking in accordance with the revelation you have just received. Or in other words, to allow revelation to shift your thinking. To confess sin is far more than just acknowledging its existence. It is to come into agreement with that God says about you, which is expressed in the word made flesh by Jesus Christ. He declared you innocent at the cross. 
Matthew chapter 6, verse 14 and 15. <clears throat> Up until now, we have, we have studied stories of grace being released on rat, in radical ways. But what, what, the re, what of the retention of sin? If you, verse 14, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Did that just slap you in the head? How many battle with your own record of wrong? Stop it. Maybe you're battling your own record of wrong because you won't forgive your brother. Oh, it's, it's my distaste for Ron Culver. Oh, let's get personal. It's Ron Culver's sin that doesn't allow the Father to forgive me. Could it be that significant? What does it say? For if you forgive others their trespasses, let's call it sin, your heavenly Father will forgive you of your sin. But if you do not forgive others their sin, Neither will your heavenly Father forgive you of your sin. Maybe this is why you keep having a record against yourself. When you can't declare yourself innocent, you darn sure aren't going to declare anybody else. It starts with you. Now, I'm getting serious, guys. Listen, we, I believe God is entrusting us with this key. I'm, I'm looking for you theologians that, to, to, to get in your Bible, prove me wrong. I've wrestled this sloppy grace and avoided grace for years because I couldn't put my fingers around it to get it to where I could, I could run a leadership and run a... Listen, I'm not avoiding what is truth. Up until now, we've studied stories of grace being released in radical ways, but what if the... But what if the retention of sin, but what of the retention of sin? What if there are those who are unwilling to forgive even for just justifiable causes? The beauty and terrifying paradox of forgiveness is that we are subject to the measure of grace that we are willing to release. The verses immediately following the Lord's Prayer, which tie into context with the prayer, affirms this reality. Jesus literally says, if you forgive others of their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your trespasses. It's often assumed that this only applies for those who sin against us. But that's not specifically detailed here. So it is rather a safe assumption to make that it is with, within both the sphere of our right and responsibility to forgive everyone. How could we accomplish this if we had not been given the ability to steward grace properly? Listen, if he, if he hadn't breathed upon you and filled you with his spirit, his DNA, he, you couldn't forgive people their sins. Who's ever sinned you, forgive, they'll be forgiven. Who's ever sinned you, retained, they'll be retained. Listen, and, and, and you, think, you think, oh, well, you know, I, for, I, I know I forgave that person of this, but I haven't of this, this, and this. Oh, not, you're not going to get a free pass over your assumptions. You're not going to get a free pass because you put your own wounding, well, they rejected me, they didn't like me, they didn't answer, therefore, I'm like, shoot them a bird. How could we accomplish this if we have not been given the ability to steward grace? Stewarding grace is part of the innocence message. Stewarding grace and innocence will give you the identity to sit into a righteous seat. When you sit into a righteous seat, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging for bread. Your prayers will start having an effect. Matthew 18, 21 through 35.
to the wicked servant. Peter, <clears throat> this goes all the way to the wicked servant. You, gotta, you have to look these up. Peter here asked a most practical question. How many times do I forgive people? How many chances do sinners get, especially when it is against me personally? Peter thinks seven chances is a bit much. Jesus thinks that number is a little bit low. <clears throat> this launches Jesus into the parable of the servant who owes his master a large sum. You have to understand that. His question is, how many times do I forgive Rodney? How many times do I forgive Ron? And I'm like, okay, I can forgive Rodney a little more because Ron works closer to me. What does he say? No, seven times 70. He put the number out there so far, there's no way in the natural I could even attempt it unless I step into the supernatural DNA of God himself and do it by faith. Every day. Yeah. <clears throat> Listen to this. But what, what, what that question does, what, what that, that question does is it, it, it takes Jesus to the parable of the wicked servant. If you read those scriptures, 2135 of Matthew 18, the master says he's going to sell the servant's family and possessions to pay the debt. Remember this punishment. So, so, so the, the, he owes the master money. The master says, I'm going to sell you. The servant begs mercy and is forgiven the entire debt without further discussion. Is that a good God? So you can get forgiveness from God like that, right? <clears throat> so the first part is the master wants to, wants to give him his punishment. Number two, he begs and gets forgiveness. Number three, he then finds a fellow servant who owes him very little. He threatens the indebted servant and tells him he will cast him into prison to be subject to the tormentors until his debt is paid. The master hears the first servant's lack of mercy on his fellow servant and calls the first servant back to him again. He reinstates the debt because of his lack of gratitude and then applies the servant's own idea of punishment on himself. So maybe some of your unforgiveness, maybe some of your tormenting demonic spirits is because you have not released others. You are holding other people into judgment, and you, wonder, and you think God's judging you. Did I kill you? You're all dead. You're not. Does this make sense? I, I, I'm telling you, I'm about, I'm about to change my counseling. If you're being tormented, who are you tormenting? Would I be wrong? Okay, I just want to stay biblical with you. The point is clear. When you judge others, you're inflicting judgment upon yourself. <laughs> I heard Susie one day. I said, Susie, you know, why don't you preach? She's like, no, 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 no. Why? She goes, I know how critical I am when people preach. I don't want people doing that to me. <laughs> she has the concept. <laughs> when you release grace to others, you re release grace to yourself. How many need grace? How much are you giving it away? Don't complain and ask for more if you're not giving it out. Consider this truth. Truth. What is the measure of grace you give to live with is the measure of grace you release to others. How much grace do you want to release now? Romans 11, 31 and 32 So they have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, but he may have mercy on all. This is a stunning passage of massive importance. Verse 31, Paul is transparent that grace will come to others because mercy shown to you that you are surrounded by the disobedient both for your sake and for others. You never know how much grace you have to release until you're surrounded by those who need it. In that atmosphere, will you judge or will you love? 
Will you condemn or will you forgive? Whatever you do, your spiritual authority in that moment marks the body by what you release, making the body of Christ famous for either judgment or love. Do you want to make him famous for judgment or love? Matthew 24, 12, and because lawlessness will be increased and the love of many will grow cold. Anger over sin is normal and justifiable. Sin should make us angry, but righteous indignation should stir up a greater love. <laughs> That's good. Not killing compassion to the cold dead. Listen, if you're going to go not love, if you don't let that anger stir you up to greater love, you're going to go cold. What if the present condition of the world is less the results of lawlessness of mankind and more of the results of coldness in the church to lawlessness? Hmm. What if love burns? What if love burns hotter and <clears throat> rather than grows colder? And grace is released because love burns hotter <laughs> instead of grace being withheld. I know this is a wonderful message, isn't it? And I'm not even near done. Second. Corinthians, got plenty of time. Second Corinthians, hmm? Ah, darn. <laughs> Second Corinthians, five seventeen. You can read the scriptures. Paul was possessed by love, having come into this conclusion: Jesus died. Jesus Christ died, not just for you, but as you. Verse 16, Paul de determines that he will now no longer be recon recognizing people by the flesh any longer. He sees people beyond the flesh into the spirit, finding the treasure of Christ within them. Jesus died to redeem the image and likeness of God within you. Jesus died to redeem the image and likeness of God within you. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, and that ministry is defined as not counting their trespasses against them. He declared them innocent. And he turned to 19, give us, he gave us the same ministry. Three more verses. Romans 3, 22 and 25. This is one of the most common verses used in witnessing. For we have been taught that in order to receive grace, you must first be convinced that you're a sinner. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. However, in context, this section actually says to, <clears throat> to so much more about your righteousness in Christ. Verse 24 says, all who have sinned have now actually been justified by grace. See, we use it to drag you to the sinner's prayer. Admit you're a sinner, admit you're a sinner, and then you can get saved and be like me. Don't leave people stuck in the identity of sinner in their mind or in your mind. Verse 25 says that on the cross, he passed over all the sins previously committed. Grace on the cross transcended the, the progression of time, extending both in the past and the future. 1 Peter chapter 4, 8 through 11. Keep your love hot, opposed to letting your love grow cold. Become fervent. Love covers a multitude of sin. Verse 10, Peter reveals the understanding that we are stewards of the grace of God. 2 Peter 1.9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his sins, his former sins forever. When Listen, if, if he made you innocent and you're still walking around that you're not. He's calling you blind, nearsighted, which is self-seeking, and blind. These qualities listed before this are often applied to in discipline and discipleship with the motivation that we will attain to some degree a spiritual gain or purity. 
But this verse reveals a stunning conclusion that the only reason you lack these qualities is because you're blind to how clean you already are. When you remember how pure you actually are, these qualities are automatically manifested apart from your own, for your own survival and effort. That's what innocence does. I believe that God has called Identity Church to properly steward the grace of God, revealing the mysteries of innocence and righteousness. I am formally introducing you today to Charlie Coker, a grace preacher. I am done resisting the grace message. You can look at me and you can judge me if you want to. I'll be glad to sit down and discuss it with you. We have undervalued and underused, not used properly, the grace of God. We have, we have been poor stewards of God's grace. I can tell you that the wounding that I went through as a leader, when John Crowder came in and blew this place up, took me a long time to repair it. I resisted it. I resisted it publicly, but privately I could not I could not biblically get something to beat him upside the head with. And I challenge you. I'm challenging you to find for yourself where you are judgmental in your response versus grace. I am convinced that we can properly steward grace, forgive people of their sin to where they have the identity of innocence, come to maturity in those weak areas, and be useful to reproduce the kingdom. The next book I'm working on, the title of the book is Jesus, the Man of Rebellion. He rebelled against religion, and they murdered him for it. You're going to have to murder some things in your own life. You're going to have to mortify the deeds of the flesh and find the things of the Spirit that grace has been given to you for. If God releases the power that he has promised this house with any other foundation, we will become abusive and destructive. Are you quiet because you're hearing me? That prophecy was sent to me by a man who disqualified me and told people that I was an un unusable prophet, immature, dangerous. Do not have him come to your church for 22 years. He sent that prophecy to me Friday and said, we are living this. When can you come preach that message of innocence? We are living this. I want you to receive the innocence message. But I'm going to tell you, if you make it cheap, I'm going to expose you. Because that is not cheap innocence. When your innocence becomes cheap, you'll misuse it. When your innocence becomes cheap, you think you have anything valuable to give anybody else. 
This isn't cheap grace. Thank you for tuning in to today's message from Identity Church. To know more about us, go to identitychurch.net, where you'll find resources such as a calendar, media, and upcoming events. You may also download an app for your mobile device from the Apple App Store or Google Play. Then from your mobile device, you can hear our messages, read from the Bible, take notes, connect with us on the social media, and even pay your tithe. Again, thank you for tuning in to today's message from Identity Church.